0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis, welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Wednesday, the nineteenth of April. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore, and it offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines. China's GDP grew 4.5% year on year in the first quarter, accelerating from 2.9% growth in Q4. That was above market estimates of 4% and the strongest pace of expansion since the first quarter of 2022. Retail sales in China rose 10.6% year-on-year in March, topping expectations of 7.4% and hinting at increased consumer confidence after three years of zero COVID restrictions. This was the strongest pace of growth in the retail trade since June 2021. The Reserve Bank of Australia warned that further tightening... In monetary policy could come if needed. The central bank said in a statement that it was important to be clear that monetary policy may need to be tightened at subsequent meetings and that the purpose of pausing at this meeting was to allow time to gather more information. Apple chief executive Tim Cook has launched the company's first retail store in India in the financial capital Mumbai. Reports say that people from across India came to Mumbai to participate in the opening event. Apple will open its second outlet in the country in Delhi on Thursday. And the stores will bring Apple closer to a market with one of the youngest populations in the world and a fast-growing economy where there's increasing appetites for high-end smartphones. On today's programme, I'm joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Feil and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA. And if you want to get in touch, please do go and visit my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. In a quiet session on Wall Street, US stocks closed almost unchanged as analysts sifted through the latest round of corporate earnings reports for insights into how corporate America is faring against the backdrop of rising interest rates and persistent inflation. Johnson & Johnson and Bank of America produced better-than-expected earnings on Tuesday, while Goldman Sachs fell short on revenue estimates. The S&P 500 rose just 0.1% to 4,155. The Dow slipped 11 points, that's under 0.1%, to 33,977. The Nasdaq was also flat at 12,153. After the closing bell, streaming giant Netflix posted mixed results – Earnings topped Wall Street's estimates, while revenue came in slightly below them, and the streaming service added only one and three quarter million customers in the first quarter. Investors were expecting about 2.4 million new customers. In after hours trading, shares of Netflix initially fell more than 10%, but later recovered to the flat line. Over in the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was up 0.2% at 3,393, while in Shenzhen, the tech-heavy Chinex fell 0.1%. About 40 companies listed on the mainland announced that shareholders or senior management plan to offload their stakes. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index was 132 points or 0.6% lower at 20,651. The tech index slumped 1.2%. AI firm SenseTime fell 1.4% in Hong Kong after an exchange filing showed Alibaba recently sold 40 million shares and Chinese sportswear giant Sports raised about 1.5 billion US dollars through a top-up placement in Hong Kong on Tuesday. It's Hong Kong's largest follow-on share sale since 2021. The firm priced the shares at a discount of 8.8% to Monday's close, and shares of Antisport slumped over 7% in Hong Kong. Elsewhere in the markets, the US dollar sold off on Tuesday, with the dollar index down about a third of a percent, pairing some of Monday's gains. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog, which is once again, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter
1: Lewis's
0: Money Talk. Let's go and welcome our guests. We have on this Wednesday morning and every Wednesday morning, wealth investment strategist Enzio von Fahl. Morning to you, Enzio.
2: Good morning,
0: Peter. And also joining us, Patrick Bennett, who is a Hong Kong-based macro strategist. Morning to you, Patrick.
3: Yes, good morning, Peter.
0: Um, So let's start with that uh, wealth of data. It was a big data dump out of the mainland uh, yesterday. Let's start with the GDP data. Uh, grew 4.5% year-on-year in the first quarter, that accelerating from 2.9% in the fourth quarter of last year. It was boosted by strong growth in exports and infrastructure investments and a rebound in property prices. This was above market estimates of 4% and the strongest pace of expansion in about a year. Tertiary industry, which includes the services sector, that grew 5.4% from a year earlier, which is the fastest pace in 18 months. And uh, this was the third straight quarterly expansion as well. On on a quarterly basis, uh, the economy uh, grew 0.6% in the fourth quarter. That matched uh, market forecasts. Um, Enzio, do you want to give us a a sort of an overview, first of all, of of the GDP data um, itself? What are your thoughts? Obviously, beating
2: expectations, but is it as strong as it looks? No, I think that China is risking becoming a mini Japan for two reasons. First of all, the um, th- there's been a contradiction, which is weak consumer spending overall, really for the past couple of years. But the consumer price index is still, and the consumer price index is still very low, inching along at 0.7 percent. So there's very there's a there's a, a risk of deflation coming into into China. Mm. And secondly, we've got strong headwinds. Because of the demographic challenges in China, efforts to develop the digital economy and homegrown innovation being impinged upon by the US China relationships, those are headwinds that will impede growth going forward. So even if these numbers look a bit like more like a rebound to me than an actual structural shift upwards in the growth trajectory.
0: You say risks becoming like Japan. What has it got to do to avoid the that decade of lost growth that Japan had?
2: Less job insecurity and demographics. Demographics we all know about, hmm. but it's the job insecurity through the friend shoring. In other words, multinationals going offshore. The kind of the the, the negative utility effects of increased fiscal spending, increased monetary. Um, expansion, which is what we've seen so much in Japan, yet very little growth coming through because people are nervous about their income, so they're preferring to save also for their pensions as opposed to spending. Patrick, what, what do
0: you think? It's obviously a, a stronger number than most people anticipated, but is it, is it as good as it
3: looks? No, look, uh, yeah, look absolutely the number beat uh, expectations, but uh, I think all the numbers we've seen out of China in the last yeah, you know, two or three months are really uh, you know, somewhat flattered to deceive. Um, I agree with uh, Enzio's uh, analysis there. I think China faces incredible headwinds uh, this year uh, and 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 forward from that. Um, you know, certainly, we were expecting to see uh, some rebound from what was, has been uh, you know, three years of uh, of, of COVID-influenced uh, activity, uh, but the number then you know, doesn't really stack up uh, that well. I, I think there are a number of uh, challenges or headwinds. Uh, Again, as Enzo I mentioned there, I think yes, the u s china tensions i think are one which will continue to play and are continuing to play very strongly uh, exports uh, yes they were stronger in uh, in q one uh, but will certainly be challenged under the influence of, uh, of tighter global monetary policy uh, so we're yet to see the uh, the impact of that uh, domestically we have uh, you know the travails of the uh, of the property sector uh, which simply aren't going away so Getting the consumer to be a a driver of activity, which has been uh, one of the goals, and was expressed very clearly in the MPC, I think, is going to be a very uh, difficult, uh, difficult to achieve. So, uh, yeah, from from being uh, probably Panglossian uh, towards uh, the Chinese economy for a a number of years, uh, I'm certainly uh, approaching it now with a uh, with a higher degree of. uh,
0: I mean, it does seem a bit of an uneven recovery, doesn't it? Even the National Bureau of Statistics, their spokesman himself, said at the press briefing yesterday that the foundation for the rebound isn't solid. So, although we had good retail sales data, when you start digging into things like industrial production, fixed assets investments, they've missed estimates. So, it it looks like it's going to be a bumpy ride, doesn't it?
3: Look, I think that's exactly right. I think it's going to be uneven, you know, at best. Um, You know, the increase in or the, the better. Uh, consumer activity in Q1 is probably not uh, unsurprising, you know, given how constrained the consumer has been you know, during the uh, you know, during the zero COVID uh, time. So, you know, I'm not convinced that's going to be sustained, uh, particularly not as I say, uh, you know, with the influence of the uh, you know, of the soft uh, of the soft property market. Uh, the external demand, as I say, is going to be uh, is going to be difficult. Uh, so yeah i think bumpy and even uh, you know you know is similar similar or, or the same term so uh, yeah i don't think we should be getting uh, you know too excited about a number a headline number which uh, which which beat expectations
0: and yeah, if you want to take a positive from sort of digging down into the gdp data um, tertiary industries that includes the services sector that grew 5.4 percent from a year ago the fastest pace in 18 months so even if manufacturing maybe is not doing as well it does look like the services sector is is growing at quite a good clip
2: it's growing at a good clip, but it's still growing slow more slowly than during the COVID panic of 1990 after 2019 so mm. again we're not trying to be negative on China we're just all that I'm pointing out is that Yes, there is a rebound in growth, but whether the rebound is sustainable, I have my doubts because I think that there are some structural forces coming in, for instance, the demographics. The other thing is that consumption used to account for 55% of GDP. Now it accounts only for 33%. In other words, consumption is 40% less important to the Chinese economy than it used to be back in 2021, which was actually quite recently ago type Mm.
0: thing. The the government's got a target of 5.5%, so it's still below target, isn't it? It might be better than expected, but uh, the economy's got some work to do uh, to try and meet that target. Do you think it can do it?
2: You can always finesse the numbers in any economy, whether it's China, Japan, Germany, the US. It doesn't matter because there is a, a very large chunk of, in gdp accounting called government consumption and of course if you just whack that up then you get your then you get your magic 5.5 i think the real issue for beijing has got to be job creation and i think one of the keys structural sclerotic factors there has to be the hukou system whereby it's very difficult for migrants from the rural areas that's about 900 million people to migrate to the more urbanized clusters where the jobs are being created. Mm. Well, let
0: me, let me ask you then about the unemployment rates. Maybe, Patrick, you can give your thoughts first. It's 5.3%. Yes. Uh, that's still stubbornly high, isn't it? But the real um, shocker in this is the youth uh, jobless rates hit 19.6% in March. That's the second highest in history, very close to a record high. These are... Uh, these are concerning numbers, aren't they?
3: Well, look, absolutely, and uh, you know, if we look on an international perspective, where we're seeing, you know, still relatively or strong employment uh, internationally, along with uh, along with inflation, and in China, yes, we get a better headline growth number, but the underlying details are, you know, are concerning, and no, you know, and no, much more so than uh, you know, than the unemployment rate. As you say the youth unemployment, trying to get consumption uh, up. Uh, with unemployment being high particularly amongst the youth who tend to have a uh, or not tend to who have a higher propensity to spend rather than uh, you know rather than save uh, I think simply just points to this uh, you know these risks of this uneven uh, uneven nature of the recovery and the uh, and the difficulty in uh, you know in achieving these goals.
0: Why is it that the youth rate is so high? What, what's going wrong and what is it that's stopping sort of graduates getting jobs and
3: well, look, I think that um, you know one one item or one area I think has been the uh, you know the development of tech in the last uh, in the last few years. Uh, we know that there's been a a, a shut or a uh, a move against tech, which is which has recently been uh, which has recently been eased. Uh, I think uh, youth uh, you know, like to work in a, perhaps a different environment or uh, you know, a different sort of mode than uh, has been uh, traditional. Uh, the, so, you know, the so-called gig economy, I think, was one which uh, you know, has uh, had its uh, a place in, in China as well. So, yeah, looking for uh, you know, security versus a gig economy job versus uh, you know, something in tech, and, and those things are just not uh, are just not so simple uh, at the moment, either in China or, inf- or indeed uh, internationally
0: what what is it that's gone wrong For uh, that's, that, that's really sent the jobless rate amongst uh, the 16 to 24-year-olds almost to a record high?
2: It's got to be education policy. The supply of students being ejected or being sort of created is sailing way past the demand of labour. And I think a key concern here that I have is... The lacking vocation, the lacking, at least what we know of in the West, the lacking vocational training in China, if they were to just take the German plug and play model, the German, the Swiss, the Austrian plug and play model, I think millions of jobs could be created Quite quickly, because people need their homes repaired. They need their roofs repaired. Their their autos repaired. All this kind of stuff that is a steady income. A house doesn't care if there's a recession. It will its roof will fall in. And mm. I think it's very much an educational demand supply mismatch.
0: Also, I suppose if you look at the sectors that Beijing cracked down on in in its regulatory crackdown that went on for about two years it was the education sector and e-commerce and tech and and those two sectors traditionally they're very big job generators aren't they for uh, for graduates and for for the young young people
2: yeah but i mean if you have i I think within that within education for instance being a little bit of an educator myself if you have too many archaeology archaeology and english and linguistic graduates and too few accounting and law and all that kind of work, graduates and too few vocational graduates in leisure, in catering, in industry, in just making, in machinery making, and tool making. Then I think you're going to have a problem. I think this is a major problem in the West, which is in the, gro- globally, which is what I call extravagant expectations. Because mm. I have a degree at a BA. Um, I think I'm entitled to a better job than being a mere waiter. Well, I'm not so sure. Being a mere waiter gives you better tips and better income than being some clerk somewhere.
3: Mm. Okay.
0: Um, Patrick, let me ask you about the uh, the retail sales uh, data. rose 10.6% year-on-year in March, well above expectations there of 7.4%. Strongest growth in the retail trade since June 2021 was boosted a lot by catering. No, uh, what do you make of that?
3: Yeah, look, boosted by catering, I think uh, you know the so-called pent-up demand, and we've seen this in uh, in other economies around the globe as they emerge from uh, you know their their own uh, COVID restrictions. So, yeah, I, I'm not convinced that that is going uh, to be that's going to be that's going to be sustained. Um, and as NJ pointed out earlier, you know, consumption has uh, you know, has really reduced as a as a source of uh, activity. Uh, it's a long time been a uh, a focus of uh, international policymakers to try and get uh, Chinese savers to uh, you know to open their pocketbooks. Well, we saw in the end of last year uh, and at the start of this year through the loan data, uh, Chinese consumers in fact paying back their mortgages uh, because they were you know concerned about uh, rather than uh, not paying them at all as it was the case last year. Uh, and so getting a consumer to, you know, to spend has, has been a difficult one. Uh, the numbers this quarter uh, in retail sales, I think, are simply num- no simply nothing more than uh, some pent-up demand and I I really uh, struggle to see that they're going to be sustained.
0: And also I suppose there's a base effect here isn't it if you compare to March last year Shanghai was just starting this what two three month lockdown that it went through presumably that's part of the reason as well?
3: Oh look absolutely if we look at uh, you know savings uh, savings amounts, savings the balance of savings accounts they've, they've simply gone up and up and up uh, over the last uh, over the last few years, uh, has, as they have in uh, in other economies as well, you know. So to see some uh, release of that uh, in the early stages is not surprising. But uh, yeah, to see that to continue, I think would be uh, yeah would be well, well. We do not expect to see that.
0: Uh, NCO, are households on the mainland still under pressure? Because if you look at um, urban household income, it increased by only two point seven percent year yes. on year in real terms. It tends to suggest that they are under some strain, doesn't it?
2: Well, and this is exactly why the deposits are rising so strongly in China. The household deposits um, rose by 17.8 trillion won last year, um, and that's a big number. But this year, they've already risen, if you annualize it, by double that. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that it's a lot of job insecurity. And I think, again, because of, because of the mismatch in education, because of the demographics especially it's the women who drive the finances in China we all know that and thank god they do and i think that that's where the the the, the, the feminine caution comes in to just going and and blowing it all on 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 spending for that big shiny car so they are under pressure and they will that savings um de- demand for savings will will only increase because the global economy isn't about to take off and go through the roof either so it's not just china it's the global structural slowdown.
0: So you're blaming the housewives for not spending enough, Enzio.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting (laughs) them for not, I think they're always, ever the feminine is more, more wise (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, Patrick let um, me ask you about industrial production um, rose 3.9% in March it, that is an acceleration from the 2.4% we saw in the first two months of the year but it was below expectations what I'm, I'm slightly bemused about here is that we hear about all this stimulus uh, we had record amounts of credit uh, for the month of March uh, going, into the, going into the economy you would have thought it would have had a bigger boost on, on factory outputs why, why hasn't it?
3: yeah look i think simply that uh you know external demand is soft notwithstanding the notwithstanding the export numbers were you know were somewhat better than expected uh, but the outlook for you know, the outlook for external demand uh, remains soft. The outlook for capital goods purchases, which are domestic, which are purchased in uh, in China, remains soft. Uh, the outlook for property, uh, you know, also soft. So all the tooling and uh, uh, and all the uh, all the goods uh, in those sectors, uh, in the capital goods sectors, uh, you know, is un- is under pressure. Yeah, look, a good point about the loan data. Uh, and the data that we have seen uh, year to date yes we 've seen some some very high headline numbers, uh, but the makeup of that has been very very soft uh, we 've seen some refinancing data in that uh, consumer da- consumer lending uh, we 've touched on earlier has been uh, and has been very soft, so I think it plays again to this uh, this concept of the unevenness. Uh, you know, of the recovery, uh, you know, in, in China and, uh, and given the outlook for external demand under the influence, as I mentioned earlier, of global, you know, of tighter global monetary policy, uh, then I think that uh, this may be the, you know, the better number that we get, uh, you know, over the next few months, which, uh, you know, would suggest we may be at a, uh, you know, somewhat of a, uh, a high watermark already.
0: But do you think this data will prompt the government to, to stimulate more?
3: I think so. Uh, I believe that we will see another cut in the uh, in the uh, in the MLF uh, rate. I know we didn't get that this week, uh, but given the uh, the imbalance in the uh, in the lending data, uh, given the unevenness um, you know, of the uh, of the recovery data that we've just seen, uh, yeah, I think we'll see some more. We've seen already a uh, you know a triple R cut. I think we'll see a, a cut in a cut in rates uh, to come uh, sometime uh, before the end of uh, before the end of the this half.
0: And this this lower than expected fixed asset investment doesn't really match where all this credit expansion doesn't match the record credit expansion we saw in the last quarter. So where's
2: all the money going? Well, it could be going to support private sector firms that are just having a tough time staying above water. Mm. That's the only way to square that circle. I think that... But private investment
0: um, was quite weak, wasn't it? I think it was up under one percent. So it's it sort of you, you would think when you that if the economy is recovering, companies will be investing and, and spending, but they don't seem to be.
2: Well, I think there's a little bit of government policy in that. Um, the government, as we know, wants to centralise the economic management, which is fine. Um, it's especially for such a huge, disparate economy. I think that's okay. But the problem is that at a local and a county level, the implementation of central government directives becomes a very opaque, murky area. Mm. And I've read a few press reports that suggest that it's this implementation at the local level. I think that's problem number one. Problem number two is, of course, just that exports aren't going to be the big Um, booster that they have been, because guess what? Thanks to our American friends, the U.S.-China trade tensions and to the Chinese, the U.S.-China trade tensions have grown so stark that there's a lot of disincentive to invest in China. You don't know what you're going to, what what these politicians in Capitol Hill and Beijing are actually going to, what, what are they up to? So I think it's a mixture of corporate insolvency and also just export sort of gloom um, that are driving this sort of overcapacity, underinvestment and underproduction.
0: Patrick, we did see a big drop in industrial profits, didn't we? It was about 23%. Um, it, it, it really seems that um, the, the businesses are, are reluctant to spend, reluctant to, to invest. What, what do you think is holding them uh, back?
3: Yeah, look, I think a lack of, uh, you know, forecast strong demand, I think, is holding back um, you know, pricing power. You know, is still there to some degree, although as Encho mentioned uh, at the beginning of the program, uh, that uh, you, know, you know, CPI is is still low. So I think there's a real a sense of caution amongst, you know, not just consumers, even though they may have spent some of this, uh, you know, this saved money, uh, but a sense of caution amongst uh, amongst businesses as well. Uh, so again, you yeah, know the prospects uh, look to be uh, very challenging
0: um and so what what about the property side any side signs of property investment recovering?
2: Not from my reading of the press it it just again seems as if everything to put it simply it's just it's it's on hold they um and and if it's anybody who is doing the investing it's actually the s o e the, the state-owned property developers, not the private because of, guess what, so many of them are bankrupt. So they're not, and that's, again, where a lot of this credit growth probably has been going into this abyss of of defunct property companies. And so, again, I think that, the, again, this is a structural thing that you can't just solve with cyclical, magical wands like monetary and fiscal policy. It doesn't work that easily. Um, Patrick, final
0: words to you. Thoughts on what this means for the markets, then, particularly uh, Chinese equities and also the Chinese
3: yuan? Uh, Yeah, look, I think first on the currency. uh, I I think we look at the currency as as underperforming uh, over the next, uh, you know, three to six months. uh, External demand to be weak, uh, the recovery to be uneven. So I'd be, you know, a seller of the yuan against uh, more stable currencies uh, in the region, uh, the Singapore dollar or the uh, or the Japanese yen. Uh, I think the yuan can uh, depreciate against both. Yeah, equities—you um, know—still sustained by. Uh, obviously, there's still a lot of liquidity uh, in the global market, uh, but I think uh, it's probably back towards uh, more defensive, uh, the utility uh, type uh, counters. I think are the ones which will outperform from here.
0: Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. You heard there, wealth investment strategist Senzo von and also Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. <laughs> I'm joined now by Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Very good morning, Nick. Good morning, Jack. Um Let me ask you about Warren Buffett's. Uh, we've seen quite a lot of his investment strategy in the in the last couple of weeks or so. He seems to be selling um, his stakes in some major um, Chinese and Taiwanese companies, uh, in particular automaker BYD. He's been reducing his stake in that. He's also been reducing his stake uh, in Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing, mainly because of China-US tensions, he says. But he does seem to like Japan, doesn't he? What does he see in Japan?
1: Well, I, I think uh, most people agree that uh japan's absolutely dirt cheap uh, i think uh, one way of looking at it is the um the cyclically adjusted price earnings which um it, it is basically the uh, buffett as a uh, a disciple of graham and dodd and it's uh, basically a graham dodd way of looking at the price compared to 10-year average earnings and on that um the us is on 30 times and japan's on on 20 but uh, japan's on much lower interest rates. so he does look at things and say Look at the yield on bonds compared to the earnings yield or compared to the dividend yield, and Japanese companies pay very very good dividends so he must be looking at the uh the u s valuations and say that that's close to the uh the highest in history and look at japan they're um they're right at the bottom of their uh their range very low um, interest rates uh with u s rates where they are uh, with u s uh valuations where they are. Um, studies suggest that um, that growth over the next ten years would be close to nothing
0: i mean what what stands out is that if you look at his portfolio of holdings outside of the u s now um, it 's only Japan that is investing in it 's almost like he sees no other value elsewhere other than japan
1: well i think that there are, so what he 's gone for are some um, some trading companies, which generate pretty decent returns. I mean, he taught you gives you a five-year average uh, return on equity of uh, of sixteen percent. These uh, trading companies have been giving you four or five percent dividend yields, and he compares that with uh, the um, the long bond at uh, at uh, at the moment, uh, uh, half a percent. And uh, when he got in there, it was uh, less than a quarter of a percent. So. Obviously, the spread between the two of them uh, screams, you ought to be looking at this. But I think when he looks at the uh, the trading companies, he, he has kept saying, but they're a lot like us. Ber- <laughs> Berkshire Hathaway, compared with trading companies, they're similar businesses. Um, and so it, it is very attractive. He keeps saying, I want to be in uh, your next deal with you.
0: But, but would would you, I mean, if you look at what he holds... Um, in the US. His biggest holding is Apple. Um, he likes financials, doesn't he, and insur- banks and insurance companies, and he likes energy companies as well, the traditional uh, polluters he, he particularly likes. Should he look at the same things in Japan?
1: Uh, not necessarily. So uh, I think it's per- particularly interesting, his 43% uh, of his value in, in Apple, which is on, uh, uh, was it 45 times book. So he does keep telling us really i don 't give a damn about book uh, that uh, I mean he, he actually said in when questioned about Japan, earnings are what determine value, not book value mm. um, in, in fact, if anything we 're less likely to look at something as a low relationship to book than something that trades at a high uh, relationship to book, so it reminds you no, not book value, no certainly not uh, um, uh, uh, tangible book value, uh, but he 's looking for. So if you looked at businesses, of course, he likes a, a, a well-run business. He likes something with relatively low volatility. And of the trading companies, that's clearly um, clearly a torture. Uh, for banks, well, banks are the cheapest sector in Japan on um, uh, on cyclically adjusted price earnings. So it, you could argue well, um, no one's going to say that they're uh, particularly w- uh, well-run, uh, attractive businesses. But um, but on the uh, the other side, he does buy banks where on the, when they're on the uh, flat on their backs. And of course, um, the Japanese banks have been suffering um, financial repression for uh, for a decade, mm. and um, it looks as if the Bank of Japan's about to come out of that. So it's worth sniffing around them. Um, and then uh, people forget that. Um, another extremely cheap sector in japan is autos and uh, y- you may not like autos but note that he does own uh, gm so um, so he-, he might look at uh, japanese autos and say well actually uh, they've been uh, they've been oversold they are uh, they are well-run businesses.
0: How, how is their business doing in China? Because we're, we're hearing that um, you know the, the Japanese automakers on on the mainland are falling behind a bit in things like electric vehicles, where you know the domestic manufacturers and some of the Europeans are are really sort of stealing a march. Is is that a problem for them? Um, well, obviously, people. Um, BYD
1: made money in uh, electric vehicles and Tesla makes money in electric vehicles and uh, uh, and uh, the rest of them are struggling with it. So you've got to remember that the the reason that Dyson didn't go into um, electric vehicles is because you need to make money out of uh, other vehicles to be able to subsidize the electric vehicle business. So the, the Japanese are looking at their, uh, their hybrids, for example, and saying um, we make money uh, elsewhere and uh, now's not the time for ploughing a huge amount of money into uh, into electric vehicles you mm. might uh, disagree with that but um But certainly, uh, there are other arguments out there.
0: So what does this do overall for the the Japanese market? And and in particular, foreign investors, do do they look at what Warren Buffett is doing and saying, OK, maybe there's something in this. And, you know, we ought to be looking around as well uh, for some of these undervalued companies with with good management, with strong earnings growth, and also taking into account that he doesn't care about book value. Although, if you look at Japan, it's, it's one of the cheapest markets in the world, isn't it, in terms of trading below book?
1: Sure, I think fifty-three uh, percent of uh, Topic stocks do trade below uh, below book, but they're also cheap on uh, on other measures. I mean, I think the um, people are coming round to the idea that um, that corporate governance is improving, that uh, pressure is being brought to bear by the uh, the stock exchange on companies to uh, uh, to up their game, um, and that actually over the last ten years, um, earnings growth has been better, better from. Uh, japanese companies than uh than us or or, or m- uh, a lot of other major markets so uh it's got a reputation for not growing but uh, um, corporate profits are certainly uh certainly growing i mean i think you do use that argument that says well you you don't uh, uh, turn your nose up at Nestle or other Swiss companies because you say, I don't like the, uh, uh, the Swiss economy at the moment. But, um, but people tend to say that about, uh, about Japan. And, of course, we're talking about global businesses.
0: Mm. So if you were to make a recommendation for to him, I'm sure he's listening, um, you know, what would be your top pick, obviously, outside of the trading houses, which he already owns, where would you suggest um, he looks as your top uh, recommendation?
1: Well I think in the uh it's good having a a sniff around the banks they 're highly uh correlated with and uh and geared into a a rise in interest rates, which seems on the um, on the cards uh, there are uh, automakers that uh, uh, that i I would uh, recommend um, i'm not allowed in this um, to, to, to give you individual names, but I think there are names in the automakers that are worth uh, sniffing at, and like I say, um, Buffett already owns uh, owns GM. So those are some of the things that uh, that I've been uh, recommending.
0: And, and is Japan maybe insulated from some of the the global problems that we're seeing? Obviously, it's not not affected by the U.S. China tensions, certainly not directly um, anyway. But is it also insulated from the the slowdown that we're seeing in growth in the in the U.S. and elsewhere, and rising interest rates?
1: Well, certainly, um, Japan's got the the highest uh, gdp growth forecast of uh, of g7 or at least it's the uh, the least dirty shirt um and then uh, even next year it's um the consensus gdp growth is is faster than uh, than the u.s and i think the reason is well japan had uh, late reopening so it's starting to get the benefits of reopening now whereas the others uh, um uh, are starting to wheeze so i i think it will managed to, uh, uh, to keep growing through this. So I think corporate profits, the consensus is looking for 6 to 7% um, uh, profit growth into um, uh, March 24 year-on-year.
0: Nick, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. And thank you for listening this morning. On tomorrow's Money Talk, I'll be joined by Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, and David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Have a great day. Money Talk.